Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Redefining Security podcast. Have you ever thought that we are selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Perhaps we are. So let's look at how we can organize a successful InfoSec program that integrates people, process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. EdgeScan offers continuous vulnerability intelligence as a service, accurately identifying vulnerabilities and exposures across the full stack. All threats are verified by cybersecurity experts, providing exploitable risk and remediation guidance, virtually false positive free. Learn more at edgescan.com. Archer empowers organizations to manage multiple dimensions of risk on one platform with on-premises and software-as-a-service offerings and quickly implement industry-standard processes and best practices for advanced risk management maturity, informed decision-making, and enhanced business performance. Learn more at archerirm.com. Uh, welcome, everybody, to a new Redefining Security podcast here on ITSP Magazine. This is Sean Martin, and uh, I, I'm always giddy when I get a chance to nerd out a bit. Uh, I, I definitely care about the big picture, uh, the impact of, of technology and cybersecurity on society and us as humans, but uh, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nerd at heart. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a tech guy, a process guy. And uh, I came across a series of tweets that uh, I found very interesting. And uh, it's all about how do you respond to an event or an incident? And I, I often feel that organizations and security teams don't take tabletop exercises uh, seriously or to heart. And uh, so I'm ready to have some serious fun with my fantastic guest, CyberSec Meg, who is the author of these tweets and these scenarios and the conversations that uh, that she's spurring are, are really, really cool. Meg, thanks uh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Sean. I really appreciate the invitation and I'm excited for some great discussion. Yeah, serious fun, as I call it. So uh, quickly, as much as you'd like to share uh, a few words about uh, what you're up to and, and maybe the catalyst behind this uh, series. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, thank you for introducing me, CyberSec Meg. That is the handle of my YouTube channel. I make educational videos on YouTube, generally about how to get into cybersecurity, but also geared towards incident response. 
I am the incident response manager at a Fortune Top 100 company. That's what I do, you know, during my, I don't want to say nine to five because incident response is never nine to five, but that's where my experience comes from. And I really enjoy being on Twitter, mainly because I think it's such a fantastic platform to proliferate information freely, to get feedback, to have great discussions. And that's where the idea of Tabletop Tuesday came from. Mainly because of what you pointed out, that there are so many companies and so many individuals who neglect to actually prepare themselves for incidents. And I just thought it'd be really fun to create a series that engage so many different cybersecurity folks from different experience levels, working for whether an SMB enterprise or perhaps at a mom and pop shop, and kind of get a sense for what everyone's thought processes were on some very common incidents we're seeing in the industry right now. I love it. And and let's be honest the 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 scope of what's involved in detection protection response uh, recovery mm-hmm. is massive right right and it, it all and there's so many teams involved you have it you have ops you have security you have line of mm-hmm. business uh, all, all these organizations and then other functions that when something bad happens and comes comes to light uh, how do you deal with it? And what what I found interesting about these tweets, and maybe you can pick one to kind of kick this off, is that you actually present a scenario, and they're not they're not the wild end of the world uh, use case, right? That people right. think, well, that'll never happen to me. These these are scenarios that are very common, and mm-hmm. I, I think it's interesting that even just a simple scenario can generate so much discussion of what's the first step, who's involved. What do you do? Uh, what right. do you not do? Uh, so maybe maybe pick one uh, example, and then we'll spend a few minutes talking about that one. Yeah, I'd love to. You know, I always joke that there are two parts to incident response. That is the first phase, which is the preparation, and the second phase, which is actually responding to the incident when it happens. And what we see 90% of the time is that companies just focus their efforts, resources, and personnel on the second phase. So the first phase, I think these you know Twitter scenarios really kind of touch into them. One of them specifically that I enjoyed and thought got a lot of good feedback was recently, if you really kind of look at the OWASP top 10, you're going to see a majority of the things that are causing incidents, you know, whether it's going to be sensitive data leaks, if it's going to be broken access control, broken authentication, what have you. But I'd say right now, the top ones are going to be the sensitive data leaks, and then security misconfigurations. And one of the recent scenarios I talked about is all too true. 90% of people, if you work in security or IT, you probably have a GitHub. And right now, unfortunately, a lot of companies are allowing their development teams to use GitHub for their repositories. And unfortunately, this is leading to these developers, you know, whether they're creating e-com platforms or what have you, they're hard coding credentials into there. They're leaving the passwords. They're putting API keys in there. They're exposing all of the sensitive data to the internet, to anyone who's scraping, parsing, or just happens to stumble upon it. And say your perfect storm happens, because let's be honest, the perfect storm happens all the time in security. And in my scenario, I said, let's say a developer left um, some hard-coded credentials in there for an admin account to your cloud. And you just, for whatever reason, whether a license expired or you didn't configure it, but you don't have MFA turned on. 
So this attacker can log right into your cloud platform and do whatever he or she wants. And he takes that opportunity to spin up about, you know, several virtual machines and he's going to town with some crypto mining and runs up a gigantic bill, which is a completely, completely normal scenario to happen. And I thought the responses to it were great. You know, most people said, obviously, change the password first if you can get into the account, contact the cloud provider, try to discern if you have enough logs and whatnot to see who is doing it. If you have a threat intelligence feed to kind of identify the IP address, if it's been spoofed, that kind of thing. Ensure that the attacker didn't access any other containers within your cloud, see what kind of data they had access to, if it was any sensitive information, if you have any GDPR issues. So I thought there was a lot of really great, knowledgeable feedback on that one. Yeah, and I, it, a number of the responses are interesting. And I don't know if, if you have a general sense, did people focus on the, because you, you say there's $75,000 worth of spend there. Do you find that people mm -hmm. focused on that, how to... <laughs> and deal with that or or the greater risk of uh, what the larger impact could be beyond that 75k yeah I think people who aren't well versed in incident response their initial their initial action will be to focus on the spend and want to get in contact with the cloud provider and say hey this was fraudulent you know their initial knee-jerk reaction will be to open a ticket maybe with aws azure what have you and try to get that started in the process of getting the remuneration back um but obviously if you are well versed in incident response you would want to know that the first thing you're going to do is obviously a assess the the foothold if anyone's still in there you know is the attacker still having access into your cloud environment What's the scope of it? Have they been able to move laterally to other different containers? Are they still in there? Can you change the password if you even have access to it? Were they spreading any kind of malware? Were they, you know, what were they doing? And getting them out of there, obviously that's going to be the most important thing for us. The money, of course, it's important, especially if it's a small business, 75K is a lot. But that's going to be something that you might have someone do on the side, maybe like an executive assistant or some kind of administrator. It's not going to be the first thing I'm going to be focusing on now. Yeah, and then one, maybe one last point on this. Uh, your thoughts on how, how big this could be in terms of a problem or an impact to the business. Because so we're talking about systems and applications and containers that potentially are used to drive other parts of the business, right? It's not just that element. How far and wide does this need to be explored in terms of who gets involved? Uh, is it just this, the security team? Is it just the ops team? Do you need to bring legal in for something like this or mm -hmm. a line of business owner? Who, who's involved in, in this particular scenario? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would want to know first off who owns that, you know, if it's if it's an Azure, who owns that subscription, right? Who was the person who either A, was careless enough to not follow policy and not have MFA enabled or let a licensing lapse? Was it your licensing team who neglected to renew the license? 
if you're going to bring in legal, you definitely want to evaluate the data that's being impacted. So that's going to be asking, is there any personally identifiable information? Is there any um, PCI data from credit cards or debit cards or social security numbers, anything of that sort? And then you're going to want to identify who owns that information. Is it someone from Europe? Is it someone from APAC? Obviously, when you get farther east, you're going to get into GDPR territory. And that's when you'd want to consider bringing in the privacy and the legal teams. You might also want to involve your HR team. If this was someone who was extremely careless, perhaps, you know, they got several notifications about, about this spin that was going up and they just ignored it, or they got notifications about the virtual machines being spun up, or they got notifications about the MFA expiring then that's carelessness, right? And contingent upon your org organization's policies, that might be kind of a recipe for maybe a verbal or even a written warning. Or I guess in some places, if it's a small organization and 75K is really going to bring you down, then it could be you know, terms for terminating someone. This is a case of carelessness. Maybe somebody mm -hmm. not really thinking through the situation enough and, and, right. and leaving, leaving the creds there. Let's shift it a little bit now to another scenario that you present, which is still careless, somebody not thinking about the situation, but there's a there's a, an, a, an event that drives this and I'm, I'm speaking to the the CEO phishing mm -hmm. uh, email, right? So that that email is potentially malicious. So that's the driver behind it. but the CEO in this case is clicking on that email and uh, entered credentials and, doesn't have MFA on their account. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about this particular scenario. Uh, again, a very common one, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one is a great scenario because I think a lot of senior management unfortunately pictures themselves as untouchable. And I know definitely in some organizations, maybe even senior management might might choose to not partake in security trainings for whatever reason. So I think the scenario was a very realistic one because it shows that the whaling, the going after the big guys who obviously usually have keys to the entire kingdom is very common and they are targeted much more often than the people who are just, you know, maybe working a very common sales job. The responses to this were a really great one, and I think it's because this is such a relatable scenario. Obviously, phishing is such a huge attack vector, and it's proliferating more and more the farther we go along in the years. I think that the main response to this was, you know, let's see what did the attacker get access to? And if they did get access, what kind of data did they access? And were they able to access anything about finances, anything that could affect perhaps the stock market if you're publicly traded? Uh, was the attacker able to install any sort of malware? Were they able to move laterally within the network? You know, what were they able to get access to? And with that access, how far could they get? But you brought up a good point, you know, carelessness in this one is very applicable too. It would be a question of why didn't the IT team notice that the CEO doesn't have MFA enabled? You would think of all people in your organization, you would probably want your C-levels to have MFA enabled, right? I, I certainly would. Um, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, there's a, an interesting response and uh, it basically said, disable the account or delete the account. Uh -huh. And 
you asked in, in response to that, uh, do you want to do that before confirming whether or not it's been accessed or not? And mm-hmm. so I guess I'm wondering, are, are there things teams do in knee-jerk reaction, either mm-hmm. specific to this use case or, or others, that put them at a disadvantage to a proper response and recovery? Yeah, absolutely. All the time. If you're not experienced in incident response, perhaps you are just a normal SOC analyst who's being tasked with an incident because you're the only resource. Absolutely. It's going to be incredibly common for you to do things that are knee-jerk reactions, which unfortunately and penultimately put your investigation in jeopardy. And this can lead to, you know, disconnecting a computer from the network before getting any sort of logs that you need. It could mean shutting down a computer before getting the browser history. In this case with the um, with the CEO and clicking on the phishing email, it's not so much about what evidence am I losing as much as you have to think about the actions you're taking and how they're going to impact the business and how it's going to reflect on your decision making as a proficient and efficient skilled cybersecurity team. If we go ahead and we disable the CEO's account without informing him of why we're doing it, how we're doing it, when it'll be back online, and we remove his ability to go to meetings and get into his computer and take emails and lock him out of everything, who knows how much money we're preventing the business from acquiring. Who knows if we're interrupting a multi-million dollar deal that he has with, you know, another company that he's supposed to be working with. So it's always incredibly important in incident response. And I understand that there are loopholes to this, but it's generally highly regarded to verify an incident has occurred before you react to the incidents. And the best kind of personality for this is the people who can be very clear-headed, very level-minded and calm and not just react by seeing something suspicious and taking action on it immediately. We always want to verify that there was a legitimate incident that occurred before we take action that could either A, jeopardize a potential investigation, or B, affect any stakeholders in the organization negatively by disrupting business. Yeah, I love those points, Megan. And in this particular case, it might be difficult. I mean, presumably, the CEO somebody clearly with power uh, in the company, but hopefully somebody that uh, the the organization and the team members look up to and respect and maybe feel a little nervous around in some cases. So how, Mm -hmm. how does a conversation like this with the CEO take place? Does maybe, maybe they don't want to recognize or admit to what happened and they kind of want to shove it under the carpet or, or not really deal with it and so do you do you think teams encounter that and if so how do they overcome that is there an intermediary perhaps that they should bring in to help manage this yeah i you know evidence doesn't lie and there are going to ideally be a lot of logs specifically for using office 365 that are going to show in the logs what happened right so if i can just go and look at the Azure AD sign-on logs or Office 365 logs and view that someone from Nigeria logged in, authenticated successfully to the CEO's account, there's no denying that, right? It's obvious. 
Second to that, there are these things called conditional access policies. It's basically very, very, very granular access control in Office 365, where you can make it so that if you don't want people from a certain geolocation logging into an account, or if you don't want someone from a specific browser or from a specific client or type of computer logging into an account, then you can enact those and get very granular in your policies. So you can also look at those and say, hey, you know, we failed in our conditional access policies, and this is what allowed that guy from Nigeria to log in. As for approaching the CEO, you're right, it is a very touchy topic. But if you're working in a good organization, it's not going to matter who messed up. It's just going to be the fact that someone did mess up, and it should be handled the same regardless of who messed up, whether it's that guy in sales who makes, you know, $15 an hour, or if it's your CEO who's banking a couple million a year. If you're hesitant, I wouldn't ever directly, if you're working especially in an SMB or enterprise approach, you know, a C-level about that, you would always, like you mentioned, have a mediator or have someone on their own level of the CEO approach them. So if you're lucky enough to have a CISO or a CIO, I would personally escalate to them and inform them of the facts. You want to keep the emotion out of it, of course, and only tell them what exactly they need to know to discern the severity of the situation. And you can suggest your professional opinion and idea of what should be done to help, you know, prevent the issue from happening again. But then ultimately, it's going to be that CISO or CIO's decision of whether they approach the, the CEO. It wouldn't ever usually come down to someone who's more of a low level. Sticking with this one for, for another second, uh, mm-hmm. the scope, the potential scope with this, it's easy to view it as an account for that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps it, it grants access to the machine and to email. But th- there's so many things, right? The, the CEO probably uses it to log into other financial systems or even mm-hmm. uh, board board uh, management systems and things like that. So mm-hmm. how how does the IR team kind of assess the scope of what possibly could happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the most critical things that you're going to look at when an email account has been compromised, especially if you're working in a large organization, is what that email account was used to send out. Because think about it, majority of organizations are going to be filtering external to internal emails, but they're not going to be filtering internal to internal. They generally operate under the assumption that everything sent from an internal to internal is going to be safe because their controls are protecting that internal email. But if someone gets that access to the CEO and they have the ability to send emails as the CEO... If I was an attacker, the first thing I would do was to send whether it's malware or some kind of Trojan or, you know, anything that I can out to the entire organization, parse Active Directory, get all of the email addresses of everyone and just send out mass emails. And everyone's going to trust it because it's coming from the CEO. And if you examine the headers of the email, it's going to come from internal of the organization. So everyone's going to click on it because they're going to believe it comes from the CEO. And then that attacker gets even more of a foothold. So what I would do is I would go and look and see, you know, what rules have been created. Did the attacker create any rules that says if any emails get sent to the CEO coming from Fidelity or a board, like you said, or about a finance from a bank, then to forward it external back to the attacker. I would look and see if the attacker sent any emails using the CEO's accounts. 
Um, those are some of the main things I would look at. You can also, of course, look at the proxy history if you have those sort of logs, hopefully you do. And that'll generally show what exactly traffic wise the attacker might be logging into or trying to use that email account for. Yeah, all too often, I think the, the first reaction is to take action <laughs> and maybe it's just mm -hmm. to stop and and assess and, and watch as well. And let's take that mindset into the next one. And that the other one I have here is uh, the the e-commerce and ransomware. And what are some things that specifically related to what to look for? And maybe does it change how you view risk? Does your risk posture change in that scenario? And, and how does that impact your response? Yeah, so I think the, some of the main comments in that thread were, do I have backups of my data that I need to continue running my business? Are they tested? Meaning, have I recently recovered them, restored them, and ensured that it's viable data that I can put back into production? Is that data segmented from whatever systems were compromised so that, of course, the attacker can't, you know, put ransomware on the other portion of data? Because generally, they will look for backups of data if they can. Um, I think those were some of the biggest considerations, and those were great considerations. Regarding your question about risk, absolutely. If you're a company that's not maintaining backups of your data that's necessary to, you know, mission critical to keep your organization afloat, that's definitely going to change your mindset of how you react to it. A company that has full backups, they know they can restore to them. They know those backups are segmented, that they've not been accessed, that it's not been altered, um, the integrity of it is viable, then it's still terrible. No one wants, you know, the ransomware, especially if it's, I mean, health organizations and banks, I think they suffer from this the most, especially recently, but an organization that knows that they can restore and they can survive on as a business compared to an organization that knows well, heck, you know, we didn't have the ability to invest into backups or we haven't checked if we can restore from backups in two years. That's going to be a much bigger risk. It's going to be much more scary. And there's probably going to be a lot more of a knee-jerk reaction because those people don't know if they can get their business back up and going. They're at the hands and the mercy of the attacker who encrypted all of their files. Yeah, and this is where I saw one of the responses that that uh, made me laugh a bit, which is cry for a minute yeah. <laughs> while physically dealing with all this stuff. And I think the difference between this one and the other two, perhaps, is the potential for immediate, unprepared public exposure to this problem. The other right. two examples were kind of internal. You might be able to manage mm -hmm. them, hopefully tackle tackle the problem sure. before it becomes an issue uh, right and in this case you're yeah. ultimately probably dealing with other people's data too right. because especially on an e-commerce site who knows what people are inputting when they're logging in their addresses their phone numbers their emails their credit card information so ultimately it's also a huge factor to think I might be liable for people's data being compromised, you know, and then you start getting into the thought of, oh, well, I'm going to have to provide credit card, mo like credit monitoring services and pay for that for people. And your brain just kind of goes down a rabbit hole because all of a sudden it's not just your organization that's affected. It's your customers. It's any vendors you work with, et cetera. 
Yeah, on an e-commerce side, I've heard uh, I've heard some pretty interesting stories uh, from from some friends who manage programs. Again, the, the natural reaction is it's on fire, put the fire out. But kind of similar to your your CEO point, if there's a a huge deal, let's say it's the middle of uh, uh, the CEO's doing a huge deal, right? You don't want to take them out of that equation and not let that deal through. Similarly, it might be many many transactions, but if you take your e-commerce side down, it could crush and, and potentially even mm-hmm. kill the kill the business so how how does that management go how do you manage that as an incident response team to understand where where the line is drawn when is it too much to to either yeah take things offline mm-hmm. or nope we're just gonna we're gonna let the the system run and and deal with the fraud yeah. deal with the, <laughs> the risk later mm-hmm. it's a great question because oftentimes what you are faced with in incident response is the choice of, do I continue to wait before I, you know, hypothetically pull the network cable or or before I segment the network and shut everything down or before I bring down the e-commerce sites or do I, you know, do I do it now without verifying or do I spend the time to verify and then possibly not have to touch anything because it's not an incident. And that's going to be different at every organization. It really depends on what your appetite for risk is and how much you're willing to lose, whether in terms of resources or time, if you end up making the wrong decision, or in terms of reputation and money, if it does end up being a real incident. So a really good incident response team will have these things written out in their incident response procedures. That way, it's not so much of a knee-jerk reaction. The team has already discussed it with senior management ahead of time, because ultimately, that's who decides is going to be your CISO, your directors, the people who are you know the biggest stakeholders in the company. And it's not going to be something that you're going to need to get into you know a bridge room for and talk about for five hours. Meanwhile, you have someone in your network who's just playing around. It's something that should definitely go into the preparation phase of incident response. And that's why tabletops are so important. These things should be discussed proactively involving all levels of management throughout the company. That way, when the incident actually occurs, it's not so much of a discussion. Of course, there will be discussion, don't get me wrong, but you have a general plan of how you want to react to things and you know what your priorities are. Yeah, and I, you've made this point throughout and the, the importance of preparing and planning is critical. And mm-hmm. um, the other thing that I saw in, in some of the posts is as you were engaging with folks is that the, the plan, yes, you, you want to have some idea how you would move through it from A to Z, but mm-hmm. at some point you, you might switch from letters to numbers, right? The, the game may mm-hmm. change. So how right. important, and I know, I know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. How, how important is it and how can organizations and uh, incident response teams prepare for that game change in the middle of a scenario? Yeah, oh gosh, you're right. Being adaptive, the ability to adapt and the ability to get to get creative and the ability to prioritize is essential in having a great incident response. You need to be able to shift your focus from point A being the worst thing and having all of your resources dedicated to working on point A to five minutes later, point B pops up and it's 10 times worse than point A. And all of a sudden you need to shift all of your resources from point A to point B. And this really goes back to the incident response procedures and really having it solid and written down about how exactly you want to prioritize things. 
and what severity is an incident. Say you have, you know, different severities from one through five, five being the worst incident you could imagine where the business is at risk of not existing anymore. You might want to say for a severity five incident that you have one hour to remediate the incident. That's to say that you ensure that it's no longer persistent, the attacker's not inside of your network anymore. And then you might say that you have four hours after that to do your write-up, to present a report, to give the basics to the CISO. Uh, maybe a severity one incident, it's not going to be nearly as bad, obviously, as a severity five. You might say, oh, well, you have 24 hours to fix it and then one week to finish your report. So I think it really all goes back to that preparation and discussing and going through the tabletops and being open and conversational with everyone about what they expect. But it's also, I think, really good incident response people. They're able to just go with the flow and kind of assess for themselves what exactly needs to be done at that point in time. You know, incident response, albeit very technical and very demanding, is also a lot of decision making. And it's being able to think on the spot about what do I need to do now that's going to help my company have the least amount of negative impact? Like, what can I do now that's going to benefit us and get us out of the situation? Exactly. And it, it's a, a living process, <laughs> something, right. something that, mm -hmm. uh, that, yeah, it's not a static moment in time. Okay. We have an incident that's right. closed. Um, I want to, I mean, I could talk about this forever, but uh, let's, let's wrap here. Perhaps we can have another chat uh, after you have a few more of these and maybe some additional scenarios come up and interesting points yeah. come along. I want to leave people thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if there was any, any comment in any of the posts you've done that made you go, Hmm, that that's really powerful or, wow, if somebody really believes that uh, we're in trouble or this is so funny, it's it's serious. <laughs> this, right. it, it's a joke, but wow, the, the truth is in that joke, right? And anything sure. that stands out for you that uh, yeah, you want people top, to leave with here? Mm -hmm. Off the top of my head, I think one of the key statements that everyone has heard since the beginning of this year, end of 2020, I guess, was, you know, if FireEye can get hacked and the government can get hacked and all of these top organizations and agencies, of course, I'm speaking about SolarWinds, then who hasn't been? It's like if these, you know, top companies that have, that have the best resources and the best controls and the best experts at their disposal, and yet they're still getting hacked, then who hasn't been at this point? Who else has been hacked but doesn't know about it? And the chances of you, uh, not you personally, but organizations, our listeners, uh, and their companies using the technologies from these other entities that have been compromised uh, very likely mm -hmm. as well. So the whole third-party right. supply chain issues. Well, Meg, CyberSec Meg, more formally uh you are amazing i really appreciate you uh first off doing this series tabletop tuesdays on twitter and also for taking the time to uh to chat with me about them i, I enjoyed uh geeking out a bit with you yeah absolutely thanks so much for having me sean i had a lot of fun too and for our listeners i'll put a link to eggs 
Twitter handle and a few of the posts that we referenced today. And uh, I'll leave you with the action to run a tabletop. Damn it. <laughs> do, <laughs> Go it. do it. <laughs> Go do it. Meg, thanks a million. Keep well. Talk again soon. Thanks. Bye. Archer empowers organizations to manage multiple dimensions of risk on one platform with on-premises and software-as-a-service offerings and quickly implement industry-standard processes and best practices for advanced risk management maturity, informed decision-making, and enhanced business performance. Learn more at archerirm.com. EdgeScan offers continuous vulnerability intelligence as a service, accurately identifying vulnerabilities and exposures across the full stack. All threats are verified by cybersecurity experts, providing exploitable risk and remediation guidance, virtually false positive free. Learn more at edgescan.com. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP mag 24.